Morning, everybody. Are you uh, are you ready for week two in James? Yeah, you think you think you are. I'm just. So this is this is a little different. By the way, I apologize ahead of time. I'm having some allergies, so I'll try not to blow your eardrums out if I cough. <clears throat> um, preaching James is a little different than preaching a narrative story like Joshua, right? Because it's. It's really pointed wisdom, and it's really heavy on the theology side, but it's also so rich, full of practical things, and that's what we're going to get into today. This week's sermon is called Wisdom for Hard Times. And by the way, before we get started, if you think your cell phone's on silent, it's not. So go ahead and reach in <laughs> and silence that. Do people really celebrate wisdom? It's kind of a, a yes and no answer, right? Like, see, like right there, see that? You thought it was on silent, but it wasn't. Wisdom is not fun or exciting. Wisdom is not sensual or anything like that. People don't usually celebrate wisdom like they do good news about a job or their sports team. Like if you're a Seminole fan from last night. People don't celebrate. People don't throw wisdom watch parties. On the other side, some people actually worship wisdom like it was some sort of God. <clears throat> like it's a key that can unlock untold insight and success. And if I forced you to define it, could you even really define it? And is all wisdom the same? Or is some wisdom more important than others? See, the world is filled with many things that claim to be sources of wisdom. So how can you determine what wisdom is real and what wisdom is important? What about spiritual wisdom? How is that different from material wisdom? And which is more important at what point in life? What does wisdom look like? How can you know if you have it? What are the symptoms, if you will, of wisdom or symptoms of a lack of wisdom? This is what we're going to be talking about today. More importantly, how do you get wisdom? Where does it come from and what will it look like in your life? This is our passage today, James chapter 5 or chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, <clears throat> driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Historically speaking, I think it's important to explore the wisdom of our brother James, who was also the brother of Jesus. James, first of all, understand James' readers would have quickly recognized at least two very clear, undeniable links to the Sermon on the Mountain in this pericope. Remember what a pericope is? It is a set-apart teaching area, and that is what verses 5 through 8 are. They're a set-apart teaching area, and James's readers would have recognized two connections to the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is Matthew 7, 7 through 11. See if you can connect the dots with what we just read with this. <clears throat> Ask and it will be given to you. Hmm. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Do you see that? If any man asks, lacks wisdom, let me ask of God. Do you see the connection to the Sermon on the Mount? James's readers would have immediately said, ah, this is the Sermon on the Mount about asking and receiving. <clears throat> Another connection is Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27. Oh, oh, verse 11 too, sorry. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Good wisdom. Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27, another connection to the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man or an unstable man who built his house on the sand, unstable foundation. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, it fell and great was the fall of it. Do you see the connections to the Sermon on the Mount? Asking and receiving from God, a good God, and then the instability for those who don't ask. <clears throat> it's important to recognize these links if we're going to read and understand what James intends for us to learn in this passage. So think about that. All right, so everyone talks about wisdom. Everyone has an opinion on what wisdom looks like and how to get it. But you don't usually take advice about wisdom from people who display little or no wisdom in their lives, right? If somebody who you think is unwise says, I'll tell you what you should do, your first thought is, Okay, yeah, I'm going to, this, this ought to be rich. <clears throat> Let me tell you about James. James was someone who the early church would definitely listen to when it comes to wisdom. Here's an example why. In, in the first century church, there were Jews in the church who wanted to force Gentile believers to become Jewish. And this became a very potentially explosive issue. It was almost, well, not almost, it was definitely a racist thing. It became an explosive issue in the church, not just and non-Jewish people, but also the apostles were fighting about this. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, he had to confront Peter face to face in person because Peter was afraid to stand up to these Jews who wanted to force Gentiles to become Jewish. <clears throat> so to address this controversy, the first century church, all of its leaders gathered together in what is now called the Jerusalem Council to discuss this issue, this theological issue. And it was a very intense, deep, contentious debate that seemed to have no easy solution until our brother James stepped in. And in Acts 15, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records a speech by James to the council, which became the very basis, the motivation, and the inspiration, and the foundation for the council's final determination. Acts 15, verses 13 to 20. Look what James says. After they all finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets Agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, we should not burden the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't make them become Jewish. But we should instruct them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and he goes on to list a few other things. This was James's speech at the end. James, the pastor of the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem with incredible courage and wisdom, says, I've got the solution. 
And the wisdom he provided, the counsel, endeared him to everyone in the early church, especially the Gentiles. And if anyone in the early church had the gravitas, right, to speak about wisdom to followers of Jesus, it would be this guy. He's someone with credibility to discuss wisdom, what it looks like and where to get it. He had already displayed wisdom in a very tough situation when the stakes for the early church were very high. His wisdom helped guide the entire church through a difficult time when things, frankly, could have really gotten spun out of control. So that's the history. Look at the theology of this passage. What about God? What is he doing? I want you to see that faith will always equal wisdom, stability, and loyalty. Remember now, chapter 1 is just a cover page, a preview of all the other lessons James will give in greater detail later. So don't forget that. This is just a a preview of what's going to be happening later on. Today, though, I'm going to show you how we will handle each pericope, each teaching area in this chapter of chapter 1 as we go into the rest of the book. Think of this sort of like as an appetizer of truth to start testing your faith right away while you are waiting for the main course later. This appetizer actually previews James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18 and chapter 4, teaching you how to test your faith by what kind of wisdom you rely on. And most people talk about what the world calls conventional wisdom. You ever heard that phrase? Oh, the conventional wisdom is... We will learn later, when James goes into this in greater detail, that that wisdom is actually earthly, sensual, and demonic. The test reveals what true wisdom looks like in your life, how it impacts the life of a believer, especially in hardship. First, when real faith inspires you to ask God for wisdom, James says God is ready to give it generously. Here's the Greek word, haplos. The word means bountiful. This is how God gives wisdom to those with faith to ask. This is a description of how he gives it in its quantity and its quality. He doesn't give a lot of half-baked wisdom. He gives a ton of really good wisdom. God doesn't hold back certain doses of wisdom. Well, I'm going to give you this wisdom, but you're not ready for that yet. And the wisdom he gives is pure and perfect wisdom. And in fact, this is how it's described when it says generously, God is like on the edge of his seat, just waiting to flood his children with wisdom that will sustain them in any trial. He's like, please ask, please ask. There it is, boom. That's your heavenly dad. But when you ask... You can't wonder if God will hear you because real faith knows that God will provide you the wisdom that is needed. James is telling us those who go through the trials that test their faith and run to God for the wisdom, that is a very good sign. Now others who claim to have faith, they might ask God for wisdom but they do so with doubt. And what what does doubt mean? What do I mean by that? What does doubt look like? Well, when trials come, you are tossed like the waves of the wind, and in short, you become disloyal. 
It's a metaphor for a life that is a chaotic, unstable, unreliable mess. And why? Because you are what James calls double-minded. Here's some Greek for you. Desukos. There are two words that make up this word. The first one is D. It means two. Two. It's a number. Sukos means spirit or soul. So what you see here, you have two souls split between God and the world. Desukos. Double-minded, double-souled, double-spirited. This is a symptom of someone who doesn't totally trust God's truth. They are tossed back and forth by virtually anything. A broken-down air conditioner in a car, a flat tire, anything will send them reeling. They might even say they love God and post really cool moves. You know, you know, like when somebody posts something, a meme, and they say this, and they do that little Finger down emoji. That's so cute. They might say they love God, but really they are in love with the world and they always seem to run back to it. Almost any trial makes them question God or be mad at God or even perhaps blame God. Even their earthly loyalties are easily divided. This double-minded person displays symptoms of disloyalty in their decisions, in their priorities, and in their relationships, and their morality. By nature, they often run to the kind of wisdom James describes later as earthly, sensual, and demonic wisdom for answers that they need, because those answers often seem to be the easiest ones. And when trials come, they don't believe God is truly a good father who gives good and perfect gifts to his children, and we'll learn more about that later. Now, there's a difference, listen, there's a difference between doubt, those moments of weakness that we all have, right? We all have those, and and that's part of being human. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the divided loyalty that James is describing. You see the difference? There's an example in the New Testament of divided loyalty. His name was Demas. He was mentioned in Philemon 1.24 and Colossians 4.14 as one of Paul's trusted partners, But Demas proved to be unstable, disloyal, because when times got hard, he trusted earthly wisdom more than God's. In 2 Timothy 4, look what Paul writes. Go forward a few screens. Go again, again. Look at this. He's talking to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. I need you now. For this Demas guy is in love with the present world. He's deserted me. That's unstable. That's disloyal. When times got hard, Demas was unreliable, unstable, untrustworthy, and disloyal to Paul and to the kingdom of God. Do you see that? That's double-minded. That's disukos. This is what instability looks like. A faith that is unreliable, unstable, disloyal to the kingdom of God and to his people. These are symptoms... When you see this, these are symptoms of a poor, hurting, desperate soul who desperately needs to experience the joy of the gospel, the joy of Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross, the transformative power of salvation. So so to summarize the theological section, when troubles come, real faith inspires you to run to God and his word and remain loyal to his people. On the other hand, in any hardship, big or small, a dead faith will display 
unreliability, disloyalty to God, and disloyalty to his people. Okay, personal section. What faith and loyalty look like. This was the sermon preview this week. When, when trouble comes, big or small, it reveals what kind of wisdom you trust in. <clears throat> it's easy to trust God and be loyal when things are great. Frankly, anyone can seem to be faithful when life is manageable. Faith and loyalty isn't usually tested on vacation. There's not a whole lot of posts on Facebook from the Caribbean, unless you live there. But when loyalty comes with a price or discomfort or personal sacrifice, that's the test. Faith and wisdom and loyalty can't really be detected until it's forced, listen to me, forced to choose between the world and the kingdom of God or selfishness in the kingdom of God. When life gets hard, when the stakes are high, and a price has to be paid, an earthly price, that's when wisdom, faith, and loyalty are on full display in the child of God. Suffering, grief, betrayal, sickness, loss, even personal failure and hardship, those will always reveal what kind of wisdom you are really trusting in. Now, this all may seem academic, maybe even theoretical, but my family, I, our family can tell you from personal experience, it is practical and it is real. In fact, the lowest point in my life was the greatest test of my ropes of faith. It was the worst moment of my life, our life as a family, but it was, it was the most joyful, powerful, loyal, spiritual experience I've ever had as a child of God. Because the gift of faith, as I was crying, as we were crying out to God, the gift of faith helped us know that Heavenly Dad was in complete control. My wife put it this way, during that time, and I wish I'd, you know, I should just pass this off as my own, but I can't, she's, she's here. So, <laughs> the assurance that our faith was real became very loud, that's how she put it. So in between sorrow and tears, we knew, okay God, this is devastating, but we will stay loyal, we know you will use this. I was supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God even during immense pain, grief, and trials. Why? Because God's grace and the gift of faith, our hearts went right to God for his wisdom and we found stability and loyalty. And I'm grateful for how hardship and trials have given us joy, stability, and loyalty and confirmed that our faith is real. All of us, have and will endure hardship caused by others, maybe caused by natural disasters or money problems, or sometimes hardship even due to our own choices. Now, when you face those trials, where do you run for wisdom? 
Do you stay loyal? Do you trust God's promises? Do you remain stable? For those who don't trust God's wisdom, these trials will reveal instability and disloyalty to God in your life. This disloyalty to the kingdom of God can be in big, obvious ways or even little small ones. Okay, are you ready to examine your faith today? Do you want some practical symptoms of unstable, disloyal faith? I have a list. <laughs> oh, yeah. First one, almost any adversity, big or small, will cause someone without real faith to be unstable and double-minded. You will be constantly asking the question, who or what can I trust to lead me forward through this time? You will have consistent indecisiveness in big choices and little ones. Every decision is riddled with doubt, anxiety, and fear. Your core beliefs are always shifting. You're always searching for some sort of sign or some fresh, new, exciting experience with God. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4.14, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, teaching, by human cunning or experience, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You are, in fact, someone who regularly breaks promises, big or small, in your own personal and professional life. You are consistently inconsistent with follow-through, with what you say you want to do or promise others you will do. And people around you, frankly, aren't surprised when you come up with any number of excuses to blow them off. You are emotionally volatile. Almost anything causes extreme highs or lows, from mountaintop experiences to despair. You are impulsive. You make big, personal, financial, professional decisions without thinking them through. Your inconsistent performance or effort at work or in your personal life, sometimes you're great, others not so much. Your priorities, your personal goals are always shifting. There's no clear purpose or direction in life. You're always searching. <clears throat> your most important relationships always seem unstable. In fact, you may even tend to isolate yourself from them. You're easily angered with a lust for personal justice or revenge. You blame God and your divided loyalty grows. You obsess over earthly things like sex or money or politics or possessions. Earthly success, but not football. That's okay. You can obsess over that. <laughs> When trials come, you won't be loyal to the kingdom of God or its values. You won't have joy. In fact, you don't even know what joy is. And what is joy? The grace life definition? The supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything the world has to offer. And I added this for today, especially in hard times. <clears throat> so when hardship comes, will you have joy? Will you be stable and loyal? What does stability and loyalty look like? Well, I have a list. 
First of all, when hardship comes, you will know where to run for wisdom. There will be no doubt. Without hesitation, you will run to God, his word, and his people. You will have noticeable, unmistakable, kingdom-level resilience. You're steadfast, steady, and your reliance upon God and his church. And no matter how big or small your hardship or your failure, you have a peace that defies any logic the world can ever understand. And with wisdom from God, you can face and make hard decisions as you seek counsel from others who are faithful and loyal as well. Even when you are suffering and hurting, somehow you can have selfless, sacrificial compassion, love, and loyalty for others at the same time. You'll have integrity. Hardship won't make you compromise your values looking for some shortcut, a disloyal, easy solution. You will have supernatural endurance because you know there is an eternal hope and purpose to your life. You will have an unmistakable community of strong, loyal, ride or die, like those three and a half tries from Joshua. You'll have ride or die relationships you've built who love you, and support you that you can lean on. There will be evidence of spiritual growth and maturity during trials. Trials won't cause constant spiritual regression. Even during great loss and grief and hardship, you understand what humble gratitude is. And you will have it in spades. You will have joy. You will be, in the midst of your trial, supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God over anything this world can offer. And what faith drives you to trust and reliance upon God and loyalty, those difficult moments, you know what happens to them? Those difficult moments, as much as we hate them, they also become precious gems to you. Can you relate? Has wisdom from God made you stable, loyal, and provided joy that makes no earthly sense? This is why James said, the faithful can be joyful, supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God, joyful when trials come. When your faith inspires you to run to God for wisdom and keeps you loyal and stable, church, that is a great sign your faith is real. Do hard times, big or small, make you unstable? Are you easily overwhelmed, disloyal, lacking joy? Well, I have an answer for you today for that problem. Jesus says, follow me. My wisdom is different from the world. It will provide joy, peace, stability, and loyalty no matter what life may bring. Pray to God today. He's not stingy with wisdom or grace. And if you have faith, he is on the edge of his seat, just ready to flood you with wisdom that will make you endure and be stable and loyal and have tremendous joy when the trials inevitably come your way. Dear Jesus, we are asking you today. First of all, we humbly confess we need wisdom and we're asking you to flood us with it. 
even before the bad times come. And Lord, we're so grateful that that wisdom, when you give it, makes us stable and joyful and loyal to your kingdom and to your people. Thank you for evidence. And Lord, for those who maybe heard a list and maybe they were troubled, Lord, we know that's a good sign too. That when you hear a list that might point to a problem and your heart is pricked, Lord, we